LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Richard Kretz, who joins us to discuss his book, The Alchemical Search for the Unified Field, Pythagorean, Hermetic, and Shamanic Journeys into Invisible and Ethereal Realms. Topics discussed include Cosmic Consciousness, also known as God, and the Source of All That Is, the Deceptive Dimensions of Time, Space, and Physical Reality, Freemasonry and other fraternities and the quest for lost knowledge, symbolism, sacred geometry, and the true power of architecture, and alchemy, science, and the nature of the Philosopher's Stone. Hello and welcome, Richard, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you, Greg. I'm looking forward to our discussion this afternoon. Richard, today we're going to be talking about, or having a chat inspired by, um, your book is entitled, it's just come out, entitled The Alchemical Search for the Unified Field, Pythagorean, Hermetic, and Shamanic Journeys into Invisible and Ethereal Realms. It's quite a title. Before we dive into that, uh, just give listeners a little bit of information about your background and your work in general. Okay. Um, as far as my background, I've been dealing with uh, the esoteric uh most of my life, you know, it's a family kind of thing. Um, I've been a Mason, a Rosicrucian, involved in a lot of these, you know, esoteric societies. So I've also acquired a lot of knowledge in that regard. Um, I've practiced uh, transcendental meditation since, well, the early 70s. So it's been quite a while. And I've spent three years up on a mountain uh, with a shaman, which was uh, quite entertaining, I'll say that, and very uh, influential as far as, you know, the impact it's had on my life. Now, um, as far as I can see, this is your first book. Is that correct? And if so, kind of what was the driving force behind publishing this? You know, you, as you say, you've had so many decades of experience with these things. Uh, but yet uh, only now you're coming to uh, to putting it into book form. Right. And, uh, you know, that's a very good question, Greg. Um, and so, you know, what was the inspiration? Well, you know, I one of the things I enjoy doing is I ask questions. And I don't like to ask easy questions. I'll ask a hard question that makes folks uncomfortable. Um, because there are things folks are reluctant to discuss uh, because they don't have the answers to them. Um, and so, you know, they'll kind of try to divert you to someplace else. But with regard to the reason for it, you know, when I became a Mason 20 years ago, 
you know, it was a, a wonderful experience uh, as far as the initiation and things. And I was all excited about it. But the experience left me asking many, many questions. And when I was asking my brothers, say, you know, what does this mean or what does that mean? Uh, they really didn't know, but they weren't brave enough to to say, well, I don't know. Uh, they tried to give me a song and dance, you know, using uh, biblical passages or existential philosoph and philosophical ideas, but there was nothing that really provided a, a substantive answer uh, that seemed to make any sense. So I ended up, you know, going out on this, what I'll call a quixotic quest with the hope I wouldn't be chasing windmills, trying to find answers uh, with regard to, okay, well, what's, you know, this whole Masonic thing about, you know, and how does that fit into the broader scheme of things of what I learned as a shaman and with the, you know, Eastern mysticism idea or Vedic science uh, from India, you know, and how does that also, you know, embrace uh, the Western idea of alchemy or the occultism? You know, how do these things all work together? So, you know, I had these questions and, you know, I was on the search for answers. And over the years, I acquired a great deal of knowledge. But I also found that if I had these questions, you had you must be having these questions too, even if you're not asking them. So at that point, I felt if I had these questions, I had an obligation to pose them in an open forum. And if I had the answers to them, provide them. So, you know, they're supposed to be thought provoking um, to get folks to think, you know, and expand their sense of awareness. And that's really what the driving force, the inspiration of doing this first book is all about. Well, we'll get to Freemasonry um, in a short while. Looking at once again at the title of the book, there's a lot of sort of um, themes or uh, sort of areas, shall we say, in there, you know, alchemy, um, hermeticism, shamanism. The book, I found it interesting in its structure and how it kind of functioned. It's kind of almost like an initiatory experience in itself, and I'm sure this was part of your intention. And if someone said to me, oh, okay, so what's this book about? It's not really what it's about, it's what it is. You see what I mean? The, what the book is. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, the distinction between those two things. It, it makes a great deal of sense. Um, and it, it's kind of difficult to address it in that, okay, the book is about this, that, or something else. Um the book simply is. The book actually embraces, uh, it encompasses what the Philosopher's Stone is really all about. And folks will look at that title and, you know, it's a very lofty title. And when they see words like alchemy, uh, the unified field, uh, and then, and, you know, meditation, these can be scary words that folks aren't really familiar with. So, you know, if I was going to say, okay, well, what's the real message of the book? Well, 
without getting real technical, it, it comes across as it's meditation and all this kind of stuff, you know, you know, there are fancy ways of discussing our relationship with the supreme being, deity, God, you know, um, however, you, you know, whatever moniker you would like to use. But it's a process of improving our communication within ourselves and with God, for example, um, so that we are able to attain a higher level of consciousness and be better than we once were. So if you're looking at the book, that's all brought together in the third section of it that is referred to as the candle. And a candle, of course, provides enlightenment. And in my case, Charles was the candle. Uh, he provided light or enlightened me. Um, he showed me the way of how to be better than I once was through a variety of life experiences, vision quests, if you will. Uh, Charles, in case people are wondering, is the, the shaman that you spent all that time on the mountain with. Some of the things that I, I have in front of me and my sort of notebook are not so much questions, but kind of propositions or just ideas. I mean, just, you know, collections of words that that stayed with me after reading the book. And maybe they can lead us into some of this uh, in, in a deeper manner. One of the first things that I, I wrote down um, when I started to go through the book was simply the statement, God is real. Well, I, I think that's an interesting question, and it's a very good one. It's one that I would ask, as a matter of fact, and have asked. So it really boils down to the question of who or what is God? Um, to be honest with you, I don't really have a, a, a single answer for that. You know, my perception, my thoughts about God, about a deity— is you, we can assign whatever name we we want to it, but ultimately it's something, or we can say someone that is greater than we are, someone or something that is omniscient, um, omnipotent, um, that you know we have to look up to. And we're not able to visually see him necessarily, you know, but yet we somehow experience that present that presence, you know, he's omnipresent. And with that in mind, you know, we have to believe in something. It seems to be that having a belief is an inherent necessity within us um so you know in order to believe in something that is an intangible that we can't see requires faith you know and you could faith has a number of definitions but faith basically is believing in the abstract um, believing in something that we can't touch, feel, you know, or see, 
but there's something with that resides within us that suggests that it's part of our reality. It's it's part of our uh, consciousness, uh, our you know worldview, our paradigm uh, of life. Yeah, for me, God, the term is simply um, a sort of religious historical term that's been our way as as a species of trying to encapsulate all that is that sense of something greater than ourselves so if we look at where ancient spiritual traditions meet cutting edge science then it would be the you know the singular consciousness that is the source of all that is um exactly it's it's an attempt to rationalize uh whatever the something is that is greater than us that we're subservient to possibly exactly exactly another one pay no attention to the man behind the curtain now the context in which i noted that down in your book i i don't recall but that was the second thing i wrote down pay no attention to the man behind the curtain whatever what immediately springs to mind is the wizard of oz of course (laughs) and relate that to the idea of god who knows you know in, in the wizard of oz was the man behind the curtain god playing god no that's actually in the book and i think you've pretty much nailed it um you know oftentimes you know we have these front men and you know they're they're saying okay well you know you're supposed to believe this and you have to do this for whatever reason uh you're not allowed to question it even though that they're subservient or they have to answer to something that's greater than themselves. And in this case, in the wizard of Oz, yes, we, we have the wizard that is hiding behind the curtain, but he's supposed pretending to represent something greater than what he was. So you were absolutely correct in in your assessment of what that means. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. In other words, you know, you do what you're supposed to do without question um, but that's not really how things work. There is something greater than us. Well, I suppose in all of that, we can then contrast the original um, role of, say, for example, you know, the shaman as a, a sort of a bridge to, you know, a non-material a spiritual realm for his or her people, and how that, you know, became, you know. Uh, more conventional established religions and you had priests who again were the they were going to be the interpreters and to to explain or to be the mediators you know the access to the divine through them but then anything meaningful in that became lost as millennia ruled by and then you end up just with with men behind curtains who maybe like some of the masonic brothers really don't understand the origins of that which they're you know supposedly part of but they're either just, you know, going along with it because it's like that's how things have always been, or maybe in some cases, you know, when religions become cults, you then have manipulators who are, uh, you know, purporting to be middlemen between uh, the material and the non-material worlds, but actually doing so just for their own gain. Right, and you know, at at the very core of that, you know, we're we're addressing religion, but what is oftentimes forgotten is a couple of things. Number one, religion is a man-made construct. Okay. 
where we have folks that are supposed to be representing the people before deity. Okay. And they become imbued with this sense of power and authority because they're alleged to be this deity's representative. However, you know, if you go back and you you take a look at, you know, and that's where we come up with a lot of this um, institutional dogma, you know, that you're supposed to do this or you're not supposed to do that. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to remember, number one, that religion is a man-made institution um, and that man is fallible. Man is inherently fallible. With that in mind, how can any man, regardless of whom he may be, actually represent God before other men when he himself is fallible? You know, it's it's a very tough scenario. Well, I suppose again, that's something that if there was meaning in in that role in the past, that was lost over time, and. I certainly I've asked questions of um, not just theologians but priests, and they have very little to say about esoteric matters, about uh, any type of mysticism, about non-material realms, about any of the sorts of questions you know that you might have asked in your lifetime. They did very little to say about it at all. It's just the really people who go through ritualistic motions on a Sunday or whatever day is the day of their right. reli- and, religion. And then without understanding, you know, the, even the symbolism of it um, is, is lost on, on many of them. Right. And then this is where I, I see hypocrisy. In other words, um, and okay, no disrespect to the church. Okay. But the church is very anti-magic, very anti-occult. They assign a negative connotation to the word occult or esoteric um and folks you know they hear that those words and they become afraid oh these are bad things you know it has to do with witchcraft and all that sort of thing well if you really look at what the meaning of the word occult means it's nothing more than that which is hidden um and we can find the the latin root word oculus you know in a lot of things so you know, it, it's a matter of manipulation of the hearts and minds. Um, it's disinformation, you know, inappropriate influence. But again, it's hypocrisy in that they say, okay, magic, for example, uh, equates to witchcraft, and witchcraft has a bad account connotation uh, because it's not understood. But at the same time, you know, they're not acknowledging the idea that when you go to a church service, regardless of which religion it is, they are actually practicing forms of high magic. As you mentioned, rituals, you know, rituals are, are, are done because they have a magical aspect to them. Um, so, you know, in that regard, it's hypocrisy, you know, both in the dogma, and in the actual practices that are occurring. You know, it's pretty much do as I say and not as I do. Well, even astronomers will use the word 
uh, if they're you know looking at one celestial object that's currently you know cannot be viewed because it is obscured by another celestial object they they will say that one is being occulted by the other that standard as you say just simply means that mentioned freemasonry and that's something that a number of men in my family in the past uh, were freemasons it was not something that i ever came any closer to than that but it seems that it's something that well certainly in my grandfather's case that he gravitated towards as a, re- a reaction against conventional religion uh, but you know, but it was a way of perhaps you know again seeking something, feeling there was some kind of higher power, acknowledging that and saying, well, what is it? How do I explore this? You know, what how can how can I move myself closer to an understanding of what this might be? It occurs to me like the three sort of fundamental questions that I have as a tagline of legalizedfreedom.com is why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And I've had conversations with people like Mark Stavish and John Michael Greer about Freemasonry. Uh, you know, and they've said again that a lot of lodges um are, you know, social clubs, dining clubs or whatever, and that yes, they have these, you know, their the the rites and the different degrees and whatnot and ceremonies and, you know, but in some cases pseudo explanations for all this and that there seem to be not that much interest in these deeper questions. Again, it's something that maybe even like in a mainstream religious way has kind of become lost in some ways. And I mean, even in one of John Michael Weir's recent books, he was talking about you know the the word having been lost in masonry. Um, I would agree with your thoughts regarding your grandfather, and with of course you know uh, Mark Stavish, and I think Tobias Churton has has touched on this as well. Yeah, masonry as a fraternity, as an organization. Um, I think it's undergone change, uh, especially within the, like the last hundred years or so. Uh, if, if we look back to, you know, the late 1800s or the early 1900s, actually the mid 1800s, uh, we see there was a great deal of esoteric and occultist thought. And that's exemplified in the quantity and the quality of the publications that that came out of that time. Um, As we moved forward to the late 50s, early 60s, we see that there was a dissipation in that. You don't see the quantity and you don't see the quality of the Masonic writings anymore. They begin to, uh, you know... uh, What's the word I'm seeking here? They're just not, it's just not there. And in concert with that, we see that the membership within the fraternity uh, also begins to dwindle. Um, And at first it, it wasn't that great, but in the last few decades, it's been quite precipitous. And I'm going to estimate somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe one or two percent per year um the average age of masons um is roughly late 60s to early 70s so that means that and they're not replacing uh those who are dying you know the brothers that are dying uh with new members that are much younger to continue to perpetuate the fraternity so that becomes an issue. Um, 
And then for some reason, they're entrenched in certain ways of, of thinking. And they don't really like to have questions asked. Uh, because, as you mentioned, the secrets appear to have been lost. But it's not that the secrets have been lost. It's that the use, the interest in the occult or the esoteric aspects of it, um, that knowledge base has waned. Um, not that it's completely lost. There are still many of us who we continue to pursue, you know, asking those questions. But the real challenge, I guess, is that, or the not challenge, but the rationale behind masonry in contrast to any religious, not collaboration, but religious ideas, is that many folks want to become masons it's not because of, you know, any secrets the Masons may have. They really don't have any secrets. Um, it's the idea that in times past, you know, you go back many, many years. It's the idea of being able to ask questions and to seek this knowledge uh, that the church or religion in general, isn't comfortable with. Um, religions don't ask when, like it when folks begin to ask questions. Um, and that's where we begin looking at heresy. Heresy is, uh, a heretic is someone who dares to ask uh, questions that don't conform with an institution's dogma. Uh, that makes them very uncomfortable uh, because they may be hiding something or there might be some knowledge there that they, they don't want everyone to know. So Masons, you know, they're wanting, they're seeking knowledge uh, and they dare to ask the questions um, that perhaps a religion of whatever type uh, you choose may not be comfortable in discussing or, you know, addressing. So, you know, that, in my understanding, my estimation, that's one thing that would encourage someone that has questions to, to look at the Masons. It's not that they're anti-religious or anything of that nature. It's they're looking for a group of, you know, fellow like-minded thinkers that uh, are willing to explore, uh, you know, and ask the questions that are difficult and perhaps uncomfortable. Well, it's not like uh, many people, you know, walk up to and introduce themselves and say, you know, hi, my name's John, I'm a Mason, but the youngest Freemason that I know was in his late 50s. When I met this guy, and found out that he was a brother. Uh, it coincided with a campaign. It <clears throat> seemed to be quite short-lived, but I certainly noticed that now, whether it was targeted at me for any reasons, you know, any algorithmic sort of reason, I do not know. But it was basically a local area, uh, Masonic uh, lodge, uh, lodges, various ones, 
And uh, it was a, an advertising campaign, and it essentially said, I'm paraphrasing now, uh, have you considered becoming a Mason? Uh, click here for details. You know, Would you like to come along to a meeting and talk to us sort of thing? And I'd never seen anything like that before. Okay, yeah. I mean, there is certainly, how should I phrase this? They're, they're looking to improve their membership, you know, uh, to hopefully uh, engage um, younger folks because they desperately need younger men uh, in the fraternity. I mean, I've seen guys as young as 18 uh, become Master Masons. The caveat is that because the organization, because the fraternity isn't offering something that engages them, you know, uh, and, and captures their attention and retains it. Uh, oftentimes, you know, they're they're in just for they get the degrees, uh, attend a few meetings, and they find out that well, these Masonic meetings, it's just a bunch of old people. Yeah, we have you know, it's a dinner club or social club, whatever you know, where we sit down and eat. Um, the business meeting is just that it's strictly business and there's really no education and training or discussion of occult or esoteric manner of matters. So it becomes quite boring. And before you know it, the younger people are leaving. They've got in today's society, you know, that has had a great impact on the membership in that you know, 150 years ago, it was generally a one-income family. The man went to work, he got the money, you know, and took care of his family. Um, and he still had time, you know, uh, if he was fairly affluent at least, for social engagements, a variety of different clubs. And we can see if we look back in history 150 years ago, uh, some of these guys were members of a number of different clubs, whether it was the Masons or the Odd Fellows or some other fraternity. Um, very involved socially in that regard. They had time for it, and it was just a one-income family. In today's environment, though, you know, it, it's not like that at all. Uh, we're looking at families that are not just, you know, two income families where the husband and the wife work, you know, um, there's also, you know, taking care of kids. Uh, it's like, geez, you know, I don't have, you know, a nine to five or an eight to five job anymore. I've got to work as many hours as my employer wants me to. Uh, I might be doing, you know, 12 hour shifts on and off. Um, and I really don't, my time, free time is limited. Um, I don't get as much vacation or time off as I, I as they did 100, 150 years ago. Um, so they're really under a lot of socioeconomic and, and financial pressure uh, to make the best use of the time that they can. And if they're not going to benefit from participating in a fraternity such as the Masons or any other organization for that matter, then they're going to move over, uh, move on and invest in that their time to where they are receiving a benefit, you know, uh, spending more time with their family if it's possible, 
but or maybe even taking on a third job if that if it's necessary. So the time is very valuable. And if it's not being optimized, if they're not deriving a benefit from the amount of time spent with these fraternities or organizations uh, socially, uh, if they're not receiving the education or the knowledge that they were hoping to derive from it, they're going to very quickly leave. They don't have the they can't afford the time to spend on on something for which they're not going to receive a positive return on their investment. Uh, well, three thoughts on that. You've been talking about Freemasonry in general, but uh, my thoughts could equally be widened to take into, um, you know, interest in information and in knowledge in questions. Uh, you know, any of which uh, that are beyond a mundane and everyday material world, you know, just worldly concerns and, and just getting by day to day. Uh, first one was, well, my grandfather didn't speak about when he went to lodge meetings. That's understandable. Wouldn't expect him to. Um, but from the sort of vibe that I got, he also played golf. And that was one thing I did get involved with because I played, you know, I started to play golf when I was a child. Uh, you know, he taught me and I'd go along when I was very young with him. And at the end of golf, he would go into the, the members club. And at this time, it seems laughable now, but of course, uh, you know, women could become members of the club, but there was a separate lounge for them. <laughs> so there was a gentleman's lounge where they could go in and drink and smoke and, and have a meal. And I would go in there. And that seemed to me to be very much about, uh, you know, what, it, you know, the similar vibe to what he seemed to derive from the lodge meetings was it, it, it was networking and it was, you know, it, it was, it was brotherhood and it, it was man time. And you could talk about serious questions. You could, you could talk about things that you wouldn't talk about anywhere else. Let's put it that way. And amidst all the, the brandy and the cigar smoke, uh, and we sat there with my glass of lemonade, uh, <laughs> but I've got strong memories of that. Two other things. One is the idea of social connection of, you know, clubs or whatever whatever the modern form of that would be we're living in this hyper connected world now you know more connected than ever apparently but we saw during the the pandemic period how disconnected we really are in many ways and of course for many people social their social circle now has, has dwindled their actual social circle has dwindled and a lot of it's virtual now and for the some of the reasons you mentioned people don't have time to maybe cultivate real world contacts to go out in an evening or on a weekend and do things you know with different interest areas or with other groups whatever it happens to be and this applies to women and men of course you know uh, and then there's the other thing thinking about younger men coming into masonry and if you do have these young men that are interested you know in the in the bigger questions of life the universe and everything Lodges are missing a trick if, if they don't tr try and engage with them or if there aren't other older members there who are, are interested in those things because there's so many young people now, you know, men and women, you know, we're suffering from like, you know, low motivation, short attention spans, you know, again, they've been uh, living in an online world of um, constant change and, and no real focus on anything. Sure. And I, I think that's a, uh, those are very good points, you know, very good thoughts um, and, and quite germane to, to what we're discussing here. Um, 
And I can relate to it personally because uh, my father was a great golfer. And one of the things I learned growing up, uh, you know, associating him as, as he went around to the different courses and he was golfing, uh, he actually conducted most of his business out on the golf course. Okay. More business was done on the golf course, especially at the 19th hole, uh, than perhaps anywhere else. But that whole held true in times past for masonry as well. Uh, Masons at one point, you know, it's like, okay, if you're a Mason, you're, if you're a brother, you know, you come to lodge. And once we have our, our, our meeting uh, and that's over and we're sitting down and we're having dinner or whatever. Yeah. You don't generally discuss politics or anything that was pretty much off the table, but with regards to having um, business dealings, you know, yeah, it, they made a point of helping one another out um, and having that personal one on one interaction, I think, was very important that, as you noted, uh, in today's virtual world, it just isn't there. Uh, we can't sit down at, you know, a table, you know, as, at a social event necessarily and, and have uh, an intelligent discourse or an exchange of thoughts and ideas uh discuss you know business because okay you and i are both brothers and as brothers you know i have an obligation to support you as much as you have an obligation to support me so we will do business together uh more comfortably because we have this commonality than someone i don't know that you know, may have conduct have the same sort of business or service offered um, that I'm not familiar with. It's a matter of trust, and I think that's one of the things that the virtual world has lost contact with um, is the trust idea. Um, because we're not having that personal interaction, we don't necessarily trust who we're, we're dealing with. Uh, that's something that the fraternity and many organizations, including golf uh, activities, uh, had offered that seemed to be fading. And I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not. But along that line, you know, we were also discussing uh, various opportunities. And if we go back to, I think it's like 2004, 2005, there were two movies that came out that really highlighted masonry and the Knights Templar. And that would have been uh, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And then there was National Treasure. There was a tremendous amount of interest in the Masons and in the Templars that evolved from those two movies. But sadly, the fraternity uh, failed to capitalize on that. Um, you know, Younger po folks were very interested and they would come and they say, OK, I'm interested in the Masons or the Templars and I want to learn the secrets of all this, that and the other thing. And you've got the older brothers who are very entrenched in, in their ways of doing things. Uh, they're out of touch with the modern ways of thinking and engaging and in, in capturing uh a younger audience because you know they don't know how so what's their response to a younger person who is asking these questions is that oh well 
masonry is not a secret society it's a society of secrets you know if you want to learn the secrets you have to become a member well that in it of itself you know that kind of discouraged some some of the younger folks but then yeah you did have some younger folks that you know set that aside and they they wanted to, to learn the secrets of masonry so they would join anyway uh, if they were qualified only to find out that these older members just didn't know the secrets. And the reason for that, that, it goes back to what we were discussing before, is that the not just the interest, but the knowledge of, you know, the ancient mystical schools, you know, the occult, um, you know, understanding really how allegory functions within the rituals and the lectures, uh, it just wasn't there. The only thing they have to fall back on are biblical quotations, their you know interpretations, and you know various philosophies that are existential, dealing with human nature. Um, and for a younger person, again, you know that that's not going to you know capture you know engage them, you know captivate their attention um, when. Their time is so valuable, um, you know, socioeconomically, financially. Um, they just don't have time to waste on that. They're going to move on. And in conjunction with that, over the years, it didn't used to be that terribly expensive to, you know, the to well, let me digress for a moment. Dues didn't used to be terribly expensive uh, to become a, a, a mason or a member of a lodge. But with the Grand Lodge system and the way it's evolved, um, there is a great burden on the subordinate lodges to support the Grand Lodge financially. Um, and as such, the, the dues have gone up considerably to where, you know, a younger person in these economic times has to make a decision. Can I afford a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars a year, you know, to be a member of this when I'm really not getting anything out of it, or can I take that hundred dollars or two hundred dollars or whatever and maybe take my wife from my family out to dinner, put it towards going on a vacation. So, you know, there's that financial impact that they also have to consider in addition to, you know, what the return on the investment of their time is providing them. Okay, so let's change tack and talk about symbolism. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.